Hey folks, this is Martin Popoff, Heavy Metal Nut Bar. You're listening to Scott Thompson on Focus on Metal. Focus on Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, bringing you yet another bonus episode of Focus on Metal. So this weekend, we bring you a chat with author Martin Popoff. We've had Martin on the show a crap load of times, and Martin has also put out about 8 million different books on metal and other music. I probably own about uh, 4 million of those 8 million titles. And if you want to get in on the action on those, you can go up to martinpopoff.com that's uh, p-o-p-o-f-f dot com click over there you get to his home page you'll see a picture of him with uh, Rockford's Finest click the enter site and there's a listing of all the books he has available and you can uh, click on any of the PayPal links up there to buy those you can also email Martin and uh, say hey Martin you know I'm interested in this book this book and this book what would the shipping be on that he'll hit you back with a total package price as well and that's usually what I do is I buy these things three or four five at a time get a little bit of a advantage on the postage and get some more books for Martin to read and the other thing about when you get them right from Martin is he will also uh, sign those off right to you Usually with some little witty metal saying that if you're a true fan, you'll understand what it means. And yeah, they're always available on Amazon and all that as well, but I always like to get them right from the source. I should also note too that a lot of the ones that Martin has been putting out recently, they have a pretty limited print run. So, uh, you know, if you're thinking about getting the book, don't think, just go ahead and get it. So for instance, he's got a trilogy going on Iron Maiden And he put out the one for the 80s, then the 90s, and then he's got another one coming out for the 2000s. And the one for the 90s is sold out. But, uh, you know, if you didn't get in on it, there's a good chance you'll never actually get that one again. Although, you know, I did hit Martin up and say, hey, dude, you know, is there a possibility? But also in the interview today, he'll kind of explain why that whole deal is. But it just goes back to the first thing I told you. If you get on the site, you see a book you like, don't think about getting it. Get it, because there's a good chance you go back. That sucker is gone. Just a few weeks ago, I finished his uh, ACDC album by album one. That was a great read. Lots of rare pictures in there as well. Awesome. Really gives you some good background, some good commentary from a lot of people in there. Like I said, everything Martin puts out is pretty much worth getting. And there is always, you know, at least one band, two bands that he's covering that you're going to want to know about. And so this weekend, we're focused really on two books. He's got a trilogy that he's got going on, Rush. And that first one is out. It's called Anthem. It deals with Rush in the 70s. We'll be talking to him about that. That one is clearly Holy Grail territory for Richie. I've been a Rush fan for a long time as well. And probably a Rush fan for longer than Richie has. But when it comes to being, you know, who is more of the Rush fan, yeah, definitely, it's it's Richie. He wins it hands down. So that one there is, like I said, that's like the Holy Grail trilogy for Richie right now that Martin's doing. And then also, more near and dear to my heart, one of my favorite New Album bands ever is Saxon. And Martin just put out Denim and Leather, which is the first part of his trilogy on the mighty, the legendary Saxon. And anyone that listens to Focus on Metal for any length of time knows that we've talked about Saxon a lot. We've actually had, you know, album by album, three albums at a time, special series on Saxon. 
the last one we even had Biff Byford as a guest talking about his own albums as well. Uh, I am a huge Saxon fan. They were uh, just an amazing band that I found, you know, digging through the import stacks back in the 80s. And even, you know, here it is years and years later, I still really just love Saxon. Great stuff. Every video, every album, all of it. Just a band that keeps on getting better and better. And even think about it, you know, Biff's first uh, School of Hard Knocks, their solo album, even that one there, every time I play it, it grows on me more and more as well. So again, I love me some Saxon, and I was really happy to see that Martin was putting out a uh, Saxon book, finally. You know, in the past, he has put out his uh, new album uh, series of books as well with the whole history of all that, but actually to get into the Saxon uh, you, you got to love that. And again, like I said, if you see something you like, hit Martin up if you want to bundle them together. You know, disclosure, when the Saxon book came out, I knew right away, I'm getting this thing. I hit Martin up and I was like, oh shit, uh, can I get Saxon? Can I get the Maiden in the uh, in the 80s book? And then also he did a great Zeppelin book as well. You know, Zeppelin goes way back in my uh, whole thought process as well. So I bundled those three together. Martin gave me a great price with shipping and all that. And, uh, you know, I'll be happy. I'll get a, a, you know, trilogy of books to read. And uh, I'll probably rip right through those and be hitting Martin back up for uh, some more stuff. So before we uh, dive into the interview with Martin, just want to say again, if you want to check out all the stuff that he's got available, you want to go to Martin popoff.com and if you're into ebooks martin does have a lot of his books available as ebooks as well so hey with all that out of the way my great big uh, you know advertisement and praise for my buddy martin why don't we get right into the chat with martin about one the new uh, rush trilogy is doing in particular the first one in the series anthem and then from there we're going to glide into his whole thing on my favorite, Saxon. Hello. Martin? Yeah. Hey, but it seems like ages since I've talked to you. Good to hear from you. So I got to ask, how's things going with this whole COVID-19 thing where you are? Well, it's pretty much the same, I think, in Toronto, that, you know, rules-wise that it is anywhere in the world. So it's it's okay. I can still, uh, basically, my, my main uh, supply chain is not broken. Being a mail order guy, my mail house is open. So I'm allowed to, uh, you know, keep jumping in the car and driving up the highway and mailing books. So... I don't know. It's uh, coping okay. How about you guys? Well, as far as day-to-day activities, you know, Richie and I, we're both still working. He's more in uh, agriculture, and I'm in medical. So day-to-day, um, you know, we're still going to work every day. Traffic's a little bit less, but, um, you know, still, um, like I said, every day we're, we're going out. So you're you're working. You're able to go out. Yeah, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate. Both both of us with our respective jobs are both considered to be essential people. So yeah, we're we're still slogging it out every day. Uh, you know, at this point, I think it's probably just you know happy that we actually you know we both have jobs. We're able to still bring in uh, bring in money and support things. So uh, you know, like I said, uh, you know, people that are uh, a lot of our coworkers are still working at home and stuff as well. So it's kind of a whole change in in how we react. But yeah, it's uh, you know it's how we're having to live right now. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So obviously, Martin, you have put out a ton of books, but we're really trying to focus in on your two most current ones you have this week with the uh, with the Rush book, with the trilogy you started with that, and as well as Saxon. But let's start with Rush. And when we talk about the Anthem book and all that, you know, with all the other Rush books that you've done so far, did you initially think that maybe you had been uh, had 
we're done with actually writing about Rush? Definitely. I mean, the main one that I did with the band was the one with the same publisher, ECW Press. So back in, I think, 2003-ish, 2004, we did Contents Under Pressure, 30 Years of Rush at Home and Away. And that was like a short, authorized biography of the band. It was not crazy short. It wasn't like a pamphlet, but it was really only like 66,000 words, right? And then when I got asked to do the illustrated, I thought there's no way I could do another Rush book. But basically what I vowed to myself is I would have no overlap with the previous one. And the previous one had no outside press in it. So I used basically outside press to do the second one. And then album by album was just getting together with a bunch of buddies, experts, and talking about every studio album. So that had no overlap naturally. So this one is... It works out because I can use what I used in that very original one that's way out of date and out of print from 2003. Plus, um, I, you know, I swung a deal with the with the guys at Banger Films because I worked on that movie, and I transcribed so many of those interviews. And you use so little of of what you get in the films that I that that we basically struck a deal, and I was able to use that text. And so that, in conjunction with going back to the same publisher and being able to use the first book as kind of an update on the first book, um, allowed this to happen. And it's it's just going to be a massive, massive telling of the story of Rush. I mean, when it's all done, it's going to be like 350,000 words. Yeah, that is like some insane, insane word count. But when you, you know, when you first went into this thing, were you thinking that you were going to actually do like a three-volume massive trilogy on the band? Well, um, the first thing I went to ECW with was uh, I just want to do the Monster Mammoth best Rush book possible. And then, okay, so that's fine. So we, we struck a deal for that. <laughs> and then I started writing it and realized I just had way too much. And then it was my idea. I basically said, look, we got to do this. So I, I, I think I have enough for three books. We may as well bust it up into three books. Um, you know, it makes sense economically speaking, and it's cool. I love trilogies. You know, I love having these two of two on a band, three on a band situation, right? I've done it a few times. Um, so yeah, so the first one is this one out now, and then the second one is Limelight Rush, uh, Rush in the Eighties. That's out October of this year, and then Rush, uh, or Driven. Rush in the 90s and, in quote marks, in the end, uh, is coming out uh, spring of 2021. So if I think about it, that original Rush book you did is, um, yeah, that's fairly aged at this point. Yeah, exactly. It's super old. So it's 17 years old at this point. So we, you know, I talked to the guys at DCW a few times along the years about updating it and putting it out again, and we just kind of never got around to it. And this was the perfect opportunity. Now, is there a lot of overlap between what you're doing now with this new trilogy and with all the stuff that you did before, you know, pictures or, you know, thoughts or anything, or, you know, interviews, all that stuff? No, definitely not. I mean, there are there are some pictures that weren't in the other ones, but this is a whole different thing. I mean, all three of those were full color throughout lots of pictures. They're, they're essentially coffee table books, right? Two of them were hardcovers anyways, right? So true coffee table books. This one's more like an, like an academic, proper, sober, uh, you know, uh, read. It's, uh, so all there is in both of the, or in all three of these is going to be two page color sections of photos. It's not going to be oversized. I mean, they're, they're essentially, uh, 
seven by nine books, like all my even like all my other books. Um, so they're not they're not large format. Uh, although it is hardcover, uh, it's foil, it's embossed, it's beautiful. Like no no um, no dust jacket. Like this is all printed right on the hardcover. It's a really cool looking little book. But no, it's it's like your standard uh, rock biography. It's it's not a coffee table book. And it's definitely very cool the way you describe what you're going to do with the cover in that because you know that's one thing that's always with some of the books you've done it kind of sets it apart like the uh, the uh, fade to black the art of metal that one there had that kind of kind of I don't know rubber cover to it as well more of a coffee table thing but the fact that you took the extra effort to put that kind of thing into the cover it really definitely sets that book apart but then the fact that you're doing this with something that's not a coffee table book as well. I mean, that says a lot about what the, uh, you know, the intentions are with this trilogy. So, of course, you know, this is Focus on Metal, and we're always talking about focusing on metal. And, you know, that's one thing I've always thought about is, is Rush metal? Is it hard rock? So when we talk about Rush in the 70s, and particularly, you know, you're talking about Rush in the 70s with this anthem book, do you think that they're, you know, they, they fit the metal bucket or the, or the hard rock bucket? And especially, you know, primed through the eyes of somebody, you know, like you or I that lived through the 70s and, and was up through these bands as well. So you kind of have a different viewpoint than, uh, you know, a younger listener, uh, you know, so kind of, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you kind of consider that Rush in the 70s from our viewpoint is a metal band? Yeah, I would say so. I, I'm of that age, that vintage. I'm a, I'm a metalhead. So, you know, Rush, comparatively speaking to all the other decades, was much more of a hard rock, heavy metal band in the 70s. Um, you know, given that there wasn't much else out there, you know, now, now there's a big debate on it. It's funny. We do these things on, uh, banger TV where, where I've done these, um, we take these big polls and do the top five albums of a certain year, 78, 79, 70. And there's, there's always this big debate because Rush wins these polls, right. Or, or gets high up in the polls. And then people write in, in the, in the YouTube comments, Rush is not a metal band, right? Well, they 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 really have been thought of as a metal band by the people voting number 1 number 2 they're actually thought they actually beat out Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and Kiss all the time who were probably considered as much metal bands if not more in the 70s so people actually think of Rush as more of a metal band even young kids and people voting now 30 40 years later they think of Rush as more of a metal band then they even think of Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and Kiss as a metal band, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, very true. And I, again, I think that has to do with our age and, and you know, kind of our history through music as well. So, you know, we look at what Rush had going on in the 70s, a lot of different changes there. Album to album, there was, you know, definitely there was each album kind of set itself apart. From your viewpoint, what was your favorite album from the 70s? I would say my favorite from the 70s because my favorite actually is from the 80s i would say my favorite from the 70s would be hemispheres um i i just love the way first i think it's the best production um you know follow closely by 2112 um it's got my favorite rush song on it of all time circumstances um it's fairly heavy it's i think it's heavier than even farewell to kings um so, you know, people people don't notice how, how it's basically Alex turned on and doing power chords throughout most of that album, right? Um, yeah, it's very proggy. Uh, it's cool. It's uh, it's right in that era where, you know, they, they've grown up a lot. I mean, they, they, you know, they talk about the change they make onto, you know, onto permanent waves. I don't think it's that 
drastic a change. But, um, you know, it's always signified by that narrative of the spirit of radio, right? Being a shorter song, but still proggy and all that, right? But no, I, I just think, I just think hem- Hemispheres is, is, the, is the ultimate in rushness, I suppose. Now, if Richie was here, I'm pretty sure that he would be rolling out Fly By Night as a, his favorite for that era of the band. Yeah, Fly By Night's a cool album, and that that one, you know, obviously that's the album that essentially invents the idea of progressive metal, right? I mean, pretty much nobody else uh, can can lay claim to that or is even that close to that, and I always have a hard time finding bands who you would even say are similar, but... So, so with Neil coming in, that's that's a big deal, of course, and that, and changes the whole band. And you're and you're right. There's some great songs on there. There's a few that harken back to that earlier era, as well. But um, but no, everything was going great for them then, and then and then they have a dip with Caress of Steel, and then they come back with Twenty One Twelve, and and they're kind of set for life at that point. Yeah, absolutely, very true. I can just even remember in school that you know nobody had really heard about Rush. And then that 2112 album hit, and all of a sudden you had a small segment of the population that was aware of Rush all of a sudden. And, you know, we started jamming on a lot of the songs out of that as well. And I can just remember pulling out the other albums I had and people being shocked that this band had all these other albums as well. And of course, that whole cycle repeated again with moving pictures. But, you know, 2112 definitely upped the ante and, as you said, you know, made them set for life. So just curious, were you able to see uh, Rush perform at all in the 70s? No. Uh, I grew up in a small town in BC, um, 10,000 people. Closest place to see concerts as a kid was Spokane, Washington, two hours away, directly south, right? Two and a half hours away. Um, So I literally got to a handful of concerts, under six concerts, I'd say, in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Even you know, even around here where you know it was more metropolitan, and you had Boston and stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't get to a lot of them in the seventies either. So you know, we look at this huge body of work you're going to try to encompass and cover within this trilogy. Were you able to talk to the band at all about how they feel about the music that they put out in the seventies? Yeah, I mean, number one, Neil is the guy out of the three that is that tends to disavow the early stuff the most. The other guys have a little more fondness for it, but I think they all figured they grew through so many phases through the years that 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 stuff feels totally distant to them. But one thing I really liked, um, and I was trying to rack my brains and see if um, how this worked, but I'm pretty sure Getty told me something, which was the same thing that Ronnie Montrose told me about that classic first Montrose album, right? The the idea that... um, they were playing at the absolute edges of their capability. Did I mention this is hemispheres? He's talking about hemispheres. So, so he says we were playing at the absolute edge of our capabilities, and that's why it's such a good album. And I love that idea because it 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 speaks to that idea of uh, of the human spirit um, being at its best and most intense and burning brightest when you're when you're um, when you're you know the, the whole white knuckle idea of you're right at the edge about to fall off a cliff so so it struck me that uh, it's pretty neat that that they're outside their comfort level almost with how complicated that album is I thought that was a kind of a cool idea yeah it's interesting you compare that to Montrose first one as well because that is definitely a classic that the whole damn thing still holds up today, and I don't think he ever quite equaled what they did on that first album. So I really didn't think about it that much, but when I think about that now and I compare that back to uh, to Hemispheres, 
yeah, I, I get a whole strange new sense for about both of those albums. So when we look at the content of, of Anthem, you know, there's always this whole thing I know you kind of have pop-offs archive. You have a lot of older interviews and things that you're pulling into books as well that may just come out today. So you, you, a lot of times I know you have kind of a mix of content and, you know, how hard was it writing this first one? And especially with some of the earlier stuff, was that all, you know, fresh baked? Or is you have some of the stuff that, as I, as I just said, kind of pulls out of Popoff's archive? Yeah, they were already written long, long time ago, actually. Um, and I'd say the hardest was this first one because I always find it a slog doing that early year stuff, the childhood and teenage year stuff before you get to the albums. Because then I'm into my groove where I basically know this chapter's about this album and I know I'm going to mention the album cover and the production and the, the various credits and the engineer and the producer. I'm going to go through every song. I'm going to talk about the lyrics. So, so this particular book has a long, long, uh, long section on their, on their childhood and that whole, you know, sort of 68 to 74 period before they even had an album out, right? So there's there's a there's a lot of that in there, um, and that I found pretty hard because, you know, as as a writer, it's hard to kind of organize that stuff when you know it's going on for that long. Do you have to kind of uh, you know outline it before you start even getting into it? Definitely, definitely, you got to do that just to stay organized. Otherwise, otherwise, it would be just too scattered. And even even in the chapters, I have a way of slotting things into place under like big thirty six point, um, you know, headings. Uh, so when I get to them, even the chapter pretty organized. Like I know it's going to say making memories, and if I have a quote about making memories, it's already going to be slotted in there, right? Yep. Or or you or use of acoustic guitar. Okay, Alex is talking about using acoustic guitar. I think I'm going to stick that into the closer to the heart chapter. Boom, and I, I put it there, and it's sitting there waiting for me, right? So yeah, I have to write them in chronological order. Otherwise, you know, otherwise you you probably might tend to go ahead and cherry pick and write about what you're most excited about. And then if you leave what you're least excited about, you're going to be so daunted that you may never get to it. Like you just shelve the project, right? Yeah, sure. Totally makes sense. You know, one of the things is I was kind of curious about is when you're writing all these things, you know, how much of your own editing do you do or does the publisher do or, you know, how much more oversight is there over the content or feedback do you get and all, all that good stuff involved in the editing process? Well, with these ones, it's funny because these go through basically an editor in quote marks and then probably another editor in quote marks and then a copy editor. And every time they ask me to look at it again, right, which is painful and I don't do that thorough a job, but Basically, I will I will edit myself really only once. I mean, I, uh, to go through this, it's almost like it's almost funny. It's almost like I want to I, I want to leave them some stuff to find. Number one, it's a little different in this case. I've got a few buddies who who very kindly recently, um, you know, the books that I self publish, they've offered to like be my proofreader for me. Um, as as I'm about to go to print with it, right? So when it's only me. And maybe, and maybe like a like a good faithful reader like my buddy Augustine um, has looked at it. Um, Jeff, Jeff, um, a, a buddy of my, another, uh, a buddy in New York as well. Um, but basically, when it's just me and this one other person, I'll, I'll try to be much more thorough. 
but even then, I, I kind of like don't want to be completely thorough because I want to want to leave stuff for them to find, and I'll look at it maybe at the same time in tandem. But in this case, when you're turning it over to a you know a big proper publisher, you kind of want to have it in in pretty darn good shape. But yeah, it's it's hard when they give it back to you after the copy edit, and it's the third time they've given it back to you or second time. It's it's hard to like I just kind of scan through it. And I, I can't do much because because they're being so nitpicky about so many things that I figure okay they've probably caught it and then you start forgetting what rules you're going with like like where do you start writing out numbers in full versus or stop writing numbers out in full versus putting the numerals and stuff right like there's just all these crazy crazy rules that are part of a style sheet that I turn it into them totally wrong and then they change everything and then and then you're just hoping they fixed it all right so yeah just. Believe me, there's a million things that uh, that you go through. Yeah, I bet there is. Not that I'm going to be writing books any day now, but you know, just try to relate that to what you do with the audio world and production and engineering and all that. Just you know, whatever. It's just kind of my little my little geek headspace here. But uh, anyways, let's also make sure we have time to talk about uh, my favorite out there that you've recently done, and that of course is denim and leather, dealing with all the early years of Saxon, and you know. My first question is, I mean, my God, it's Saxon. I'm shocked that Martin Popoff has yet to put out a book devoted solely to Saxon. You must have had a crap load of requests to do something like this. Yeah, and it's one that I actually got um, asked for a lot. I mean, I literally, and I think I say this somewhere, that, that the two bands that I haven't written a book about that I get asked for the most are Saxon and Uriah Heap, right? And Saxon... So I got asked for it a lot. I've interviewed them so many times over the years. Um, and they, and I was uh, even in, I think it was 1979, maybe 1980, I joined the Saxon fan club and the Motorhead fan club at exactly the same time from Little Trail, BC. And I remember getting my little newsletters and pictures and stuff. It was cool. Um, so yeah, loved them, you know, starting right at Wheels of Steel, um, second album. And basically, um, yeah, I, I figured I had enough stuff. And one thing, one reason I haven't done a book on them is, you know, I've always been daunted by doing books on these bands that I that, that have so many albums, and I can't I can't imagine myself giving a chapter per album of every one of those later Saxon albums because they just put out so many albums like Clockwork, right? But then I fell into this pattern of doing these books that just look at the early years. And then maybe, or maybe not, I'll do one on the later years, like Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, I've, I've split and expanded my old, old, old coffee table books into two books each, right? Iron Maiden, I've split into three books. I'm in the middle of the third book right now, right? But the Riot book and the White Snake book, um, I basically said, you know what, this is about the early years. That's all I'm going to do. I mean, White Snake's a little different because they, you know, I did cover off the later stuff. There wasn't much, but Riot, you know, I basically see you get to a point where you have like 80 or 90,000 words and that's the proper length for a book. And, and as it worked out in most cases, I kind of forecast ahead and looked and seen what I had in a lot of these cases, like the Saxon, for example, I basically figured, you know what? I'm going to get to 89, 80 to 90,000 words in a nice, neat thing that's going to end in 1989. Just call it the first 10 years. And that's what I did. First off, got to say, I, I love the Riot book. That was great. You know, obviously bought that one pretty much. I think the week you put it out, 
But I, I am hoping also that, uh, you know, you expand beyond 89 and make that leap to do, uh, you know, the, the next 10 years of Saxon. Because I'm sure, you know, you probably feel a little bit limited by word count and all of that. So you're, you're trying to cram all that in. And I'm sure you'd love to tell more of the tale as well. You know, I, I know you're really digging Saxon as well. So, yeah, you know, as an author, you, you, I imagine you must feel some kind of frustration in capping it as the first 10 years and then not knowing if you're going to do anything else. Yeah, it is. It is frustrating. I like to be a completist too. But again, another thing that's going to happen is, is you're going to gauge it on sales as well. If, if the sales are great... Um, then, then I'll say, okay, well, you know, the sales will be at least 70% of these ones or 60 at least, because it always goes down. Even with the big bands, the maiden, the priest, the Sabbath, the second one always sells less. Right. And my publisher always tells me that in in these sequel things, you got to count on the next one selling 20% less and the next one selling 20% less. They're, they're fully thinking that's going to happen even with the rush. Right. And it's, it's part of the plan. Right. Um, so you never know. And then, and then you get these bands like Saxon where, you know, people love the early material so, so, so much that a lot of people will be satisfied with just a book like this and forget that you even never finished it. Right. So it's, yeah, it's funny. It, it's, it's almost band specific, but I'll tell you another example. Like I just did that merciful fate book, right. Um, into the coven or what is it called? Black funeral, black funeral into the coven with merciful fate. Right. That book has done quite well, and I'm getting a lot of people asking me to do a King Diamond book, and I thought there's no way I would ever do a King Diamond book, but now it's like in the back of my mind. It's like, boy, this was kind of like an enjoyable experience. It's it's sold pretty well. Um, the King Diamond albums have great stories. You know, he's he's given me lots of plot outlines and stuff. Although having said that, I kind of I kind of used up a lot of my good, even the King Diamond stuff, in sort of along the way epilogue type stuff in, in the merciful fate book. But there's an example where, you know, the sales are telling you go do the other one. So it sounds almost like what you've seen so far, as far as sales and demand, you almost have a, a kind of a, a bankable pattern to be writing to. Well, the band ones have almost always done well enough. Oddly enough, the Megadeth one didn't do that well, but the ones who have, that have not done well are, I did that book of uh, metal collecting stories and autograph stories. That didn't sell very well. And then I did that thing where I thought, okay, I've got all these interviews that I'm never going to use in books. Let me put out these six books of this interview series, only made 200 of each of them, right? And those have not sold very well. You know, people, people want a story. Like, I know this. Publishers tell me this. People want books on one band at a time. That's what they understand. That's what they can wrap their head around. So almost every book I've done that is not on one band. In fact, literally, you could probably put all my books in order of sales, and I guarantee you, everyone that is on a band will be at the top, and everyone that is not on a band, like Who Invented Heavy Metal, or the New Wave of British Heavy Metal Trilogy, or the Thrash Trilogy, every one of those will be in the bottom 50, and the other ones will be in the top 50. That's kind of weird, too, because I really enjoyed you know, the Nawaba ones you did, the Thrash ones you did, the, the the who invented heavy metal one that you did so i don't know i guess maybe i'm a i'm a book reading anomaly with all of this but i really enjoyed those ones because it kind of gives you kind of a more academic lay of the land gives you a lot to think about but you know getting back to saxon though you know you look at the stuff for the first 10 years and um in, in a way it was a bit groundbreaking it had kind of that loose stuff and all that but now you look at you know all the stuff that they're putting out now that they they've become an incredibly consistent band 
album after album, still putting out this rock solid stuff that that everybody's loved and and I would think that you know people are going to want to hear about all of the dynamics behind that as well. Yeah, that's a tough one. And again, we get in this big debate, and it is a it is a long debate where people talk about because um, Saxon is amazing right now. Like they're they're really good. They do a great job of what they do. They're almost like it's almost like they have thirty or forty extra IQ points over what they did in the eighties. Um, they're just. But the problem is, and people do complain about this, they're almost too good and too efficient, and it's, it sounds like almost too clean. And they put out these albums so fast that they start blending into each other. And as I've said in the book, I mean, it's almost indistinguishable from the same, except as having the same problem right now, with all the Mark Turnello albums being great, but so similar to each other, right? So... The ones with charm and the ones with that romantic memory and, and that and that poignant poignancy to me are the ones from when I was like twenty years old, right? So so it you know, you, you could have this debate that, that, you know, objectively speaking, you could pick any record from the last five and say it's the better Saxon album. But to me, um, to me, it's hands down power and the glory. Uh, I just love that record. I'm I'm amazed when people say things like, "Oh, it's got clean production because it was made in America and all this stuff." It's it's fierce. It's dirty as hell. I think, and it's and the playing is incredible, especially Nigel Glockler, and uh, I love the searing, crazy molten guitars on it. I, I just think it sounds like a completely different band because to me, before that. They have this sort of um, simple biker meat and potatoes uh, charm to what they're doing, but it's pretty simple. It's a little bit like Kiss and British Steel, right? But Power and the Glory to me just sounds like like they got rockets up butts. You know, it's just so so heavy and searing, and I love the writing on it and everything. To me, that's a hands down masterpiece, ten out of ten. You know, I would agree that there is a new level of bombast to that album. That's the, I don't know, that's always the thing that seems to pop into my mind when I think about Power and the Glory is, is bombast. It's just something different about that one than all the others. But, you know, another thing is when you went back and, and you're writing about all this and you're revisiting all these albums at all, were there any of them that you, you know, kind of had to rethink about? No, but I'll tell you what, um, I, the, so those later albums I'm still not crazy about. So the end of the book is about these records I'm not, not crazy about. But the one that I thought was much better than I remembered it as is Innocence is No Excuse. And I, and I have had a few people on my Facebook bring that up. Um, say that, you know, that's a really good album. And dare I say, I mean, I almost, I almost think that record's better than Crusader now. Um, so that's the one out of the later ones that I thought, um, is is much better than than got credit, but the but the other ones they they fell prey to all those eighties things, right? They got the ugly videos and the stupid clothes, and the and the you know the productions are somewhat errant, and you know the power ballads and the uh, you know the big gang vocals and stuff like that. So they fell prey to a lot of those those problems. Um, but you know all that time, as as you'll see in the book, I mean all that time they're just they're just fighting. You know they're starting to fight with themselves, number one, but they're also fighting with. Uh, and management problems along the way as well. So they're distracted as they're doing all this. They don't know what to do. They're trying to fit in 
to this hair metal thing and it's and it's not really working out for <laughs> sometimes i don't know just the whole uh the kerrang dig on on paul about the hair piece thing just popped into my head uh you know i asked you about rush in the 70s and being able to to see them in the 70s were you able to see uh see saxon at all in uh in the 80s in the 80s only once uh and it was the best time to ever see them live. It was in Spokane again, because again, same situation. I'm, I'm going to university in Vancouver and in Victoria and coming home in the summer. So I'm not, I'm not really all that often in major concert capitals. Right. So that one, so that's 83. So I would have been second year university. And uh, yeah, we went down and saw um, it was fast way opening on their classic 10 out of 10 album it was saxon on their classic 10 out of 10 album power and the glory and then it was maiden on uh uh this would have been peace of mind headlining so their their best album right so it was that was the three band bill i mean all three of those albums are 10 out of 10s in my mind and that's that was an incredible concert yeah that must have been an absolute and killer metal show again i I couldn't put any better right 10 out of 10 all the way across the board on that and uh you know since you just brought up iron maiden as well i know you you know you did the 80s you did the 90s uh is the uh, is the third book in the works absolutely i'm three quarters of the way through i'm just starting the final frontier chapter uh but then um reality struck heavy with uh the rush book and the saxon book coming out pretty much on the same day <laughs> so i haven't been able to touch that i've just been signing and shipping out copies of these books um but no, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, what, what is my word count? I'm at, uh, I'm at about, I think I'm at about 62,000 words with Final Frontier to go, uh, with British Lion to go, Primal, uh, what's his name, Rebellion to go, um, and, uh, and, uh, then uh, Book of Souls to go. So basically, Basically, uh, I'm like I said earlier. You know, I'm I'm on. You forecast as you go along. Uh, you know, at one point, way at the beginning, like at about ten thousand words, I thought, oh my god, I might be able to make two books out of this. No, I don't think so. So, so it's going to come in at the usual eighty, ninety thousand words. Uh, I'm going to call it uh, Empire of the Clouds, Iron Maiden in the two thousands, or Iron Maiden in the yeah. I don't know. It it gets messy, right? Because it's now two thousands and twenty tens, and it gets to be a. a, a kind of a hard title to do. So I might just put Iron Maiden in the, in the two thousands. Um, I think people fold the 2010s into the two thousands quite a bit these days. <laughs> yeah. Very, very true. And yeah, I can see the, you know, do I do, do it one way, do it to the other way, uh, you know, with all this going on, um, you know, have you gotten feedback from the band? Does the band know you're actually, you know, had written this book about them and, uh, you know, how, how are things from that front? You know, do they, have you sent them, uh, you know, copies of the book? Have they read it? You know, any of that good stuff? Absolutely. Uh, I have sent off copies to, uh, to Gina, um, Gina Glockler. Um, so she's got copies coming for Paul, Biff, Nigel, and herself. Uh, their managers, uh, one of their managers, a good buddy of mine, Ace Trump. I've got a book going to him and Adam Parsons, his co-partner. And, uh, and even, even, uh, Graham Oliver, uh, got a hold of me when he heard it was out. So I sent him a copy. I actually, no, I sent him and Steve a copy together. Um, cause they live close by and even Nigel Durham from, uh, the, the, um, you know, one of the drummers uh, sent me uh, sent me an email saying what I send one, and I sent one. So it's cost me a lot in free books, that's for sure, and very expensive British postage, I'll tell you. 
But no, this is the most. This is literally. Uh, this takes the record for the most books I've ever sent out to a band. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally see that. You know, plus the fact that you know this this is a band that's never kind of disavowed the fact that they are metal as well. And you know, with the uh, the heavy metal thunder movie they put out and all that, I think they're pretty proud of their heritage and what they've done. So I could I could definitely see that. And, you know, and the huge demand for this as well. You know, and also, you know, we're, we're doing this as a special, you know, bonus episode of Focus on Metal to, you know, people that are, you know, quarantined, stay at home and all that. And they're looking for more metal content every week. We're trying to provide it to them. And at the same time, you got bands that are off the road and they're, you know, different sources of income and all that. And, you know, has there been anything about, um, you know, maybe having this as a as a merch thing for Saxon as well, or or any kind of uh, you know dual promotion with the band or anything like that. Yeah, um, we might talk about that at some point because, like I say, uh, their manager is a buddy of mine, and uh, you know, I've never done this with a band yet. I've never succeeded. I've only brought it up the odd time, but you know, maybe there's a way for uh, for the band to take some copies on the road and sell them and make a make a bit of money on them, or or maybe take it and put it on their site and make some money on it. I I would love to see those guys. Um, you know, all these bands are hurting right now. I, as I told Ace, and you know, when we got in a bit of a discussion about this and other band guys, I think bands right now have to figure out a way to be a mail order business for a while and, and sell a lot of mail order stuff. Cause that's the one thing that is still allowed to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very true. And you know, I've been, I've been getting a lot of stuff, mail order, you know, some of these band things, you know, supporting the crew, things like that, where they've asked for, you know, buy a special t-shirt and donate to some of those folks that, uh, you know, they're out of work right now because the concert industry is totally, you know, shit the bed, shut down. And, you know, I know, hey, I'm working, like I said at the beginning of the interview, Richie's working. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know if Richie's been doing it or not, but I, I have been sending out and, and getting some things mail order, trying to keep the keep the wheels in motion, as they say. So I think this would, you know, be another perfect mail order opportunity as well. And I, I think you see it in all kinds of places, right? Because, you know, you look at, uh, you know, people, they're, they're looking for things to read, I think, at this point. And, and I think a good example is, you know, uh, Greg Renoff, he's got that new Ted Templeman book. And you go to Amazon and that sucker is is sold out. And, uh, you know, I didn't pre-order it. I was, you know, waiting around, seeing what was going to go on. And I ended up ordering it from the Van Halen store because they had it. And it was, you know, there's a good cost promotion. It kind of makes me think of this as well. So speaking of mail order, of course, you know, everything is uh, is always available from you on mail order. So uh, how about letting everybody who's uh, listening know where they can get uh, both Anthem and uh, Denim and Leather or any other uh, books they might want to get from yourself? Yeah, thanks. Uh, these are these are both available at martinpopoff.com. There's full descriptions and pictures. There's PayPal buttons for the U.S., international, and Canada. Um, my main income any year is literally the mail order of my own books, right? And uh, and basically, I sign them all to to whoever buys them and ship them out. Or you can give me some special instructions if you want, if it's for a buddy or whatever. And uh, yeah, I ship them out of here. And I've been uh, I've been uh, feverishly shipping out Rush books and sacks and books for about uh what is it today so so about about a week now nice and of course and as you know already got my order in for uh for denim and leather and a few other books as well so looking forward to those hitting my post box any day now and it also worked out great right that you get you know richie's favorite band and you're doing anthem for that one and one of my all-time favorite saxon doing that so i mean couldn't have worked out any better as a great time to one get a bonus episode to make people lives a little bit better but also let everybody know that uh you know what what you've got going in the uh in the world of Martin Popoff yeah 
<laughs> Thanks for having me. As always, Martin, no problem, man. It's always great to have you on the show. You know, I think that the Martin Popoff legacy goes way back from here on Focus on Metal. Always, you know, always happy to have you coming on. And I'm sure that Richie's going to be hitting you up again when you get the next, uh, the next chunk of the Rush book out. And I'm going to be sitting back hoping that the uh, Saxon ones you know, keep on coming as well. But again, Martin, thanks for taking some time to talk to us about Anthem and about denim and leather. I uh, really appreciate it every single time you're on. So uh, keep staying safe out there and uh, I'll talk to you again, hopefully very soon. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. There is our chat with the mighty Martin Popoff. And again, you can go to martinpopoff.com. I know literally he just said it about two minutes ago, but you know, you go there Again, click on the Cheap Trick picture, enter site, go in there, and he's got the listing of all the books he has currently available. Scroll through, and again, you know, he keeps saying it, but, you know, hit him up. You could get some postal uh, discounts there, bundle things together, get a whole bunch of things to read all at once. All that stuff is well worth getting. And then you do that, you get on Martin's mailing list, he lets you know when things are coming out as well. You know, kind of that first come, first serve, almost like being a little insider to a whole bunch of good metal stuff coming out of Canada. So anyways, hope you guys enjoyed another extra bonus edition of Focus on Metal, trying to take up a little bit of your weekend hours. And uh, holy crap, I look at this and, and we're actually, you know, 45 minutes in on this thing. And I've been trying to do these quickie half hour type of things or or less. And uh, yeah, this one here is, is topping 45 minutes, which is pretty cool. So I hope that's made your lives a little bit better. And just so you know, coming up this week on the show, we have a great talk with A&R guy extraordinaire, Michael Alago. He's got his brand new book, I Am Michael Alago. And Richie's got a good chat with him. So that is what is in store for you on our normal, regularly scheduled show this week. But for now, for this one, that's it. We're all done. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself, Richie, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, stay safe. And until we talk to you again, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.